You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 3, Neoliberalism. In the last episode, I talked about the history of feminism in Canada, the history of white feminism in Canada, and how in the early 1990s and throughout the 1990s, the feminist movement through the National Action Committee of the Status of Women Canada, NAC, white supremacy played a critical role in taking down the organization. White supremacy is one side of the story and one side of the feminist movement's collapse in the 1990s and early 2000s. It's really hard to know if had white supremacy been properly combated, had activists been able to pierce through uh, whatever kind of barrier white supremacy had placed in their way, if NAC could have been saved or if something could have grown out of the ashes of NAC. It's hard to say because at the same time, there was something else happening that made collective national level organizing in Canada extremely difficult. And that thing is neoliberalism. Now, the previous chapter, chapter one in the book and episode two in the podcast, was actually written and conceived of attached to this chapter. And so I told the story of the combination of white supremacy and neoliberalism taking down the National Action Committee. But through many processes of revision, it became pretty obvious that this was an issue that needed its standalone chapter. Neoliberalism has been defined in a lot of different ways. I like to think of neoliberalism as being a political, social, and economic arrangement that privileges the individual at the expense of the collective. I'm going to read some definitions of neoliberalism as well, in the same way that I read definitions of feminism to make sure that we're all on the same page. But I've written a lot about neoliberalism, and I've thought a lot about it. And still, I can't quite exactly get my tongue around the word. You might hear me struggle to get that word out every time I say it. But neoliberalism really does underpin so much of not just, like, not just activism in in Canada from the 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s, but also everything about how society was structured. And these massive reforms, you know, they were brought in uh, violently uh, in uh, in Chile in the early 1970s. Uh, They were brought in by Margaret Thatcher in uh, the 1980s in the United Kingdom under Reagan in the United States. And they started under Mulroney in Canada, but it wasn't really until the 1990s that our own kind of neoliberalism got ratcheted up. And so you have organizations like NAC and many other social movement organizations who had some kind of relationship with government, whether they had direct government funding or they had stable funding that appreciated the need to have ongoing maintenance work in between flashpoints. And so for NAC, what this looked like was you had this umbrella organization that comprised up to 600 members at the height of NAC's membership. And this was in the 1990s. And most of the money came from the Status of Women Canada, which was a federal uh, department. 
Neoliberal reforms say that there's no reason to fund collectives of individuals, that a better way to fund social action is to fund individuals themselves. And so very rapidly, NAC's funding model switches from one that is stable and that, 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 that funds the operations of the organization to one that is projects-based. And the projects-based funding means, you know, you have to go to government and you say, I want to have this project on gender-based violence. I want to have this project on international solidarity with women in Estonia. I want to have this project on whatever. And you can see very quickly how stable and continuous organizing becomes really difficult when organizations are now pivoting to chase money based on projects. And this is where we are today. So many not-for-profits are, are, are functioning all the time, chasing project-based funding and, 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 and just trying to cobble together enough money to have that, that steady operational funding in between those projects. Neoliberalism's impact went far beyond the specific funding arrangements that existed for social movement organizations. Neoliberalism completely and fundamentally transformed the way that Canadians understood themselves in relationship to one another and understood themselves in relationship to the state. Think of an election where someone is running on the promise of free higher education versus an election where someone is promising to get rid of the deficit. One has direct material consequences for people and the other is a completely invented theoretical uh, promise that the vast majority of people probably don't even understand, number one, and number two, will never experience the benefits of what happens when you eliminate the, the debt, because that's usually code for then also defunding the state, right? Getting rid of tax revenue and slowly hiving off what, what state services people have come to expect. Before I get into definitions of neoliberalism, I think it's really important to mention that oftentimes in this episode and probably in future episodes when I'm talking about the neoliberal construction of society, and it's really important to note that fundamental to the understanding of the family in a neoliberal context or under capitalism or colonialism, the notion of the family is a heteronormative Notion. So you have a father who's often the breadwinner, the primary breadwinner, or the person who makes the highest salary. You have a mother, you have a couple of kids. Uh, and I don't talk about the family like this because I think this is how it should be. Uh, I talk about the family like this because this is what neoliberalism assumes is the most common unit within society, these isolated, broken apart family uh, units that have been removed from community, community supports like neighbors or friends or other families that might be able to lend a hand or family members who would participate in the family life. Neoliberalism, just like capitalism, requires the family unit to be isolated and atomized and without any support to be able to raise those children, make the money to live, and effectively be in the complete service of private capital, profits, and private property. 
And so this heteronormative understanding of the family is really, really important to understanding neoliberalism because then it also finds anything that is a threat to the the status quo, the way neoliberalism needs it to be, as threatening. And so queer families or or alternative living situations, right down to cooperatives, become in and of themselves a threat to the neoliberal order. Um, and and just as I say in in the book. When I talk about women, if I don't clarify and say cis women or trans women, I always mean women, including cis women and trans women. And I will do my best to make sure I'm mentioning non-binary individuals as well. So just like I didn't provide a complete and profound analysis of the history of the feminist movement, I don't do a, a, a century long look at how Canada's economy went from the pre-wartime economy to a wartime economy to the boom uh, of the welfare state. But it is worth mentioning that during the 1960s and 1970s, which was the same time the feminists became active in a a very profound way, in a a national way, organized uh, in, in, in groups like had never before been the case in Canada, there was also a flood of women into the labor market. At the same time as the flood of women in the labor market were unionization drives. And so you have this uh, political consciousness and political awakening among many women who before had not even been in the labor market at all, now working, now seeing problems on the workplace and seeing unions as the possible way in which they could address their their material conditions. While Canadian women were, were were flocking to the labor market, there was also a rise in migrant workers coming to Canada to do care work. And then this starts to, to underpin what Canada's care economy uh, would eventually look like today. Those wor- workers mostly came from the United States and the Caribbean. They were mostly black women. And as neoliberalism intensified in Canada, I, I, I quote political scientist Grace Edward Galabuzzi talking about how Well, here are his words. The shift towards neoliberal forms of governance and labor market deregulation aimed at flexible labor deployment is calculated to achieve maximum exploitation of labor. And so in the 1970s and the 1980s, this would create the labor market segmented by race and by gender in such a way that the lowest paid workers are more often than not indigenous, black and racialized, and the highest paid workers are white. Um, and there's, of course, wage segmentation between white women and, and non-white women. In the 1990s, there was a fundamental shift in how Canada's economy operated. And economist Jim Stanford argues that there's three moments uh, where this neoliberal economic policy really arrived in Canada. The first was the, the, the role that shifting from Keynesian fiscal policy, which dominated most of post-war decision-making, it was replaced by monetary policy. And this shift in, from fiscal policy to monetary policy, he argues, plunged Canada into the recession that some of us might remember in the, in the early 1990s. And so interest rates soared, tens of thousands of Canadians lost their home, and the impact, of course, on, uh, on women, not just as workers within the public service who, who bore the brunt of cuts to the public service, but also as stable uh, 
family units having to pick up the slack when uh, a male partner may have been laid off. So that had a profound impact on individual Canadians. The second, he argues, was when the free trade deal with the United States was codified in 1989, which would become NAFTA. And of course, this would transform Canada's economy. It would result in the flight of more than 600,000 manufacturing jobs. And those jobs really were the engine of the modern Canadian economy. And so again, very gendered, a lot of um, men working in those jobs, but those jobs had enough, they paid enough to um, to not require both parents to work or not require both parents to work full time. They likely came with uh, benefits. And, and so, you know, with those jobs disappearing, not only did the salaries disappear, but also the, the health benefits or dental benefits or vision benefits or whatever. And so that has a profound impact as well. The third shift that he argues really ushered in this neoliberal era in Canada was the dramatic turn towards oil extraction and natural resources as Canada's principal economic driver. Because don't don't let anyone tell you otherwise that the, the economy, Alberta's economy rooted in the tar sands, this is not something that has always been from the dawn of Alberta, the way that Alberta has existed and operated. This, this is a relatively new shift. And that shift happened in an intense way in the early 1990s. And of course, that also has a profound impact on women if, they're, uh, if they're, they're, their male partners are working in these projects, what then starts to happen is family fracturing in migrant workers within Canada traveling enormous distances to work in the tar sands. Um, and we see very gendered impacts of that. And I will talk about that in future episodes. At the start of the show, I said that there's a lot of different ways to define neoliberalism, and I have my own ways and my own ways of understanding it. But in Take Back the Fight, I quote a definition of neoliberalism that I thought was very helpful to understand how neoliberalism operates in Canada. And so in his 1998 essay, The Essence of Neoliberalism, Pierre Bourdieu examines the international forces that impose global market-based economies. And in its wake, he says, called into question any and all collective structures that could serve as an obstacle to the logic of the pure market. The nation whose space to maneuver continually decreases work groups, for example, through the individualization of salaries and of careers as a function of individual competencies, with the consequent atomization of workers, collectives for the defense of rights of workers, unions, associations, cooperative, even the family, which loses part of its control over consumption through the constitution of markets by age groups. I find that so interesting, right? Calls into question any and all collective structures that could serve as an obstacle to the logic of the pure market. And so that isn't just social movement organizations. It isn't just unions. He argues it even includes the nation itself, like the idea of Canada, and this is why we sell our sovereignty off to other countries while we're trying to come up with these free trade agreements. And even the family, even those collective structures that uh, that women's role have been so connected to since Canada was founded, even those pose an obstacle to the logic of the pure market. And so all neoliberal changes in Canada are are being done 
with the intention of putting profit and private ownership at the core of what needs to be protected in Canada. And then you can see from there, of course, then we, we need to have a, a robust prison system. Then we need to have uh, police funding that is through the roof to protect this private property. We need to have border security agents who work hand in glove with the American empire while also enforcing racist and colonial policies that deny Indigenous sovereignty and that break up families who are trying to come to Canada. When you think of neoliberalism in those terms, it's pretty obvious why this state would have an interest in crushing social movement organizing. And so there's direct ways that they did this, as I've already mentioned, things like defunding or shifting funding or whatever. But there are also other rhetorical ways that this happened as well. And so this this coincides with the rise of rhetoric, like it only takes one person to make a difference, uh, celebrity activists like the Kielbergers or uh, some environmental activists who were toted and held up by the media as like the savior for whatever cause. And through that reformulation of activism as a celebrity, all of a sudden social movements no longer are required because you have everything you need from a social movement wrapped up in an individual. That individual can do the activism. They can convince politicians if they're very good or charismatic. They can they can do research if they need to. Maybe they have a staff person to help them out with that. Uh, and they're the ones that journalists can go to and say, oh, the federal government is going to you know create a new whatever strategy on gender-based violence, what do you think? And then all of a sudden we have the celebrity voice. And this has been intensifying over the last 15 years, made far worse by the internet. Because at the end of the day, we are all individuals online and, and having a social movement space or a social movement voice on Facebook or Twitter is really, really difficult. I mean, how many of us have had to set up organizational Facebook accounts only to have them shut down because they're not real people, right? And so while we're seeing this transformation from the collective to the individual at a national level, organizing becomes much more decentralized because, of course, those of us who are active in social movements don't just disappear, don't just lose sight of why we do what we do because the state makes it more difficult. But certainly there were, there were mutations that were necessary to allow social movement organizing to continue. And those mutations often meant that that organizing fell off of the radar of national uh, figures like politicians or media because they were doing local work. And at the same time, of course, we're seeing a defunding of local media, right? So all of a sudden you have people doing the work, doing the work on the ground, helping people out individually or making uh, changes in their communities, but, but very often not being able to plug into some sort of national or pan-Canadian federated structure to amplify uh, a, a social movement demand in one part of the country and connect it to another part of the country. Now, this isn't exactly the case for all movements. Of course, I personally was involved in, in one that managed to survive all of this, although barely, and to this day um, is even more barely, the student movement was able to find structural ways to continue to exist while resisting uh, the pressures on it to to decentralize, um, which, of course, it eventually decentralized anyway. <laughs> so, um, you know, these things maybe do come for all groups uh, at some point. 
And I will mention, I will come back to where we are at today because there is some really exciting uh, regroupment that's happening. So, so groups finding new ways to work together, finding new kinds of coalitions and ways to express uh, positions that they that they have uh, while r- maintaining and, and protecting the, the the richness that comes with being a decentralized organization. The 1990s were characterized by a lot of radical action as well. And I think that that's really important to mention because it isn't just the case that government funding uh, changed and neoliberalism just crushed our movements. Movements were maturing and becoming quite radical. And a lot of that was seen in movements against globalization and the uh Flashpoint events of that, like the APEC protests or the battle in Seattle, uh, a lot of us, I mean, if you're my age, you'll remember seeing them on TV when you were probably a bit too young to participate in them. If you're older than me, perhaps you were there. Uh, perhaps you can remember the taste of tear gas. If you were really young, um, you might not know this history at all. But the, the anti-globalization movements were rising in such an incredible way in the 1990s that by the time the 2000s dawned, even though formal organizing became so much more difficult because of funding constraints and because uh, a lot of organizations were forced to professionalize to be able to get certain uh, funding envelopes, radical organizing continued and it reached its, its peak in some ways uh, in 2001. And in 2001, about 30 feet from where I'm recording this podcast, <laughs> The Summit of the Americas protest in Quebec City in April 2001 would mark the, the, the height of anti-globalization organizing in North America for a while. Of course, these things come in waves. And uh, it was an amazing show of people power. There was a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds of tactics that were used. And the people made it clear that there was no social acceptability for the free trade agreement of the Americas, but... Everything changed just a few months later when September 11th happened. There was some anti-globalization organizing that happened in the aftermath of 9-11, but 9-11 changed so much about how social activism happened, what was possible, and what instantly became very difficult. I don't want to say impossible, but very, very difficult in those early, uh, in the early years of the 2000s. But it's hard to overstate just how much of social movement activism changed in the aftermath of 9-11, not the least of which was the intense and violent criminalization of brown people, so Muslim people or people perceived to be Muslim, the Patriot Act, um, a lot of fear and a, a major chill on radical organizing. And while protests to demand that Canada does not invade Iraq continued and there were very Uh, lively actions that happen in streets all across this country, things kind of peter out after the waves of anti-war mobilizing happens in 2003 and 2004. And it brings us into this new era where we are today. At the same time, the internet becomes more and more and more ubiquitous. And, you know, there was amazing flashpoints uh, like 
the uh, very surprising to me mobilization against the Harper government uh, who wanted to prorogue government uh, to not have to deal with um, uh, charges of Canadian soldiers transferring Afghan detainees to be tortured. Of course, overseeing that was Danny Fortin, who you might remember was overseeing Canada's vaccine distribution until uh, allegations of sexual assault uh, that he committed were uh, made public. And then after that, a lot of people uh, who were radicalized through uh, fighting for this bizarre uh, parliamentary procedure called prorogation found themselves into Occupy uh, camps all across Canada in 2011. And Occupy then ushers in a new era. And it's amazing to look at how different things were in April 2001 versus fall of 2011 and Occupy sweeping North American cities and towns. The backdrop to all of this is that in Canada... Canadians have a sour and dour prime minister in Stephen Harper. This is a man who is ideologically opposed to collectivity in any way, unless it's a church that he supports because he's not even like pro all churches. This is a man who was able to bring the two sides of the Conservative Party together and hold together this shaky agreement between social conservatives and the radical right and red Tories or, or people who would be more open to social programs as a way to maintain peace uh, within Canadian society. And under Stephen Harper, a lot of organizing is forced to change because there's just certain things that cannot happen anymore. And one of the major things that changes is that Stephen Harper closes most, almost all of the Status of Women Canada offices in Canada. And the logic behind this and, and, and the subsequent kind of justifications from Bev Oda, uh, one of his ministers, and then Michelle Rempel, whom people might know from Twitter, <laughs> is, is that, you know, you don't need organizations to, to be feminists. It, you, can, you can just be a feminist. It's, it's about self-identity. And Michelle Rempel was a real big proponent of talking about self-identity as feminism. And so she would talk about how she re experienced sexism from her colleagues, which is like very fucking unsurprising, and, you know, creates a couple of minor situations where she suggests that maybe sexism is the reason that she's not able to run for the leadership of the party. Um, but then, of course, we'll never go further than having a structural analysis. It's about her and her personal experiences, the microaggressions she's faced and whatever. And so this helps to change in Canadian consciousness the idea that feminism is a movement of people coming together to fight for something and instead is just a label that you can apply to yourself. With women like Michelle Rempel and, and Ronna Ambrose, who was the head of a very anti-women's women's organization, <laughs> uh, announcing to the world that there's a different way to be a feminist while at the same time, there was no um, movement structures that were loud enough uh, to be able to say, sorry, Michelle Rempel, like, it doesn't matter what the fuck you think you are. You're not doing anything feminist. And so as far as anyone's concerned, like, don't call yourself a feminist. You know, don't call yourself a feminist until you leave this party that is actively causing harm uh, to women in this country. But Stephen Harper was so anti-feminist and so anti-woman. Uh, his, his crusades against uh, funding uh, international development organizations because they provided abortion services, just like very petty and violent and piece of shit actions to take. By the time 2015 rolls around, people are ready for something new. And not just new, but something that we haven't seen before in Canada. It could have signaled that the old Liberal Party was back. Here's a d dynasty pick, the son of 
of, you know, Pierre Trudeau and someone who is not the skilled politician that his father was and perhaps was riding a bit on the name, the coattails, the the spirit of his father to, to become elected. But it wasn't exactly the kind of decision that a party that needed a facelift would have chosen unless Trudeau could have become a completely different kind of politician. And so that's what happened. Justin Trudeau became a different kind of politician. He looked different. He tried to put forward this air of a Liberal Party that is not what the Liberal Party is, wanted Canadians to forget that the Liberal Party is as much an establishment party and and, and, and plays as much to profits and capital as the Conservatives do. But through Justin Trudeau and his sunny ways look and approach, this is going to end the 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 era, the difficult era of Stephen Harper. And so and Canadians bought it and they bought it in a major way. In 2015, Canadians gave Justin Trudeau that shot and, and they gave him a majority government saying, OK, we are we are tired of this guy and we are ready for something completely new. And it's very interesting that feminism played a major role in that transition. You'll remember, I'm sure, that the first catchphrase that Justin Trudeau dropped on us all was, because it's 2015, right? Because it's 2015, which was his response to a journalist asking why he had a gender balance cabinet. Because it's 2015, obviously, this should be so obvious to you all that this is the right thing to do. And he made quite a big deal about it. And the media frenzy that that happened after, not just in Canada, but around the world, dubbed Justin Trudeau the feminist prime minister. And I will talk about this more in other episodes because this is not the episode to get into uh, government and uh, the, the way that feminism is used by politicians to launder their reputations and launder their acts. But this was a was a very important and calculated way for Justin Trudeau to make himself so different from Stephen Harper that there would be no question that this is going to be a better era. So feminist Trudeau gets all of the accolades. He's called your feminist boyfriend, your feminist prime minister boyfriend. Uh, There's lists and articles written by news agencies around the world about how Canada is just so great to have this amazing feminist in, in office. And his first act is like purely representative, purely for pageantry, right? Oh, I have a gender balance cabinet. It's like, guy, you could have put like two thirds of women in your cabinet if you really want to make a statement. And, you know, not that much long after that, Francois Legault, who is not a left wing guy at all, he also creates a gender balance cabinet and doesn't even mention it. And it's like not a deal. But Trudeau plays up this pageantry. And all of a sudden, we have this feminist prime minister. It takes the word feminism and it makes it so confused, though, that this then <laughs> is kind of the, the space that we're operating in politically in Canada uh, from that moment since 2015, where the, the the nation's most powerful white man, rich white man can announce to the world that he's the feminist and that there's no feminists that have to give him the title, <laughs> that he's not even afraid of saying that because he's he knows there's no feminists out there who are going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
what the hell are you talking about? Because the ones that would say that don't have the platform and they don't have access to media. And the ones who wouldn't say that would be able to say, wow, this is an amazing advance in feminism. And we look forward to working with him, right? Key, we look forward to working with him, aka we look forward to being able to apply for those grants to be able to make sure my organization has the money to pay its bills to continue the work that we do. Right. And like, we'll, we'll talk about that more as well in other episodes. But Justin Trudeau remixes the word feminism to be a, a verb, to be something that activists can call themselves when they're fighting against power. And he says, not only can I just take this word, but I can take this word and promise nothing in response to demonstrate how I'm a feminist. It was amazing. And no journalists actually went record scratch. What? The, you're a what? <laughs> Why are, you're a feminist because you seem like an, an okay dad and like you and your wife don't seem to totally hate each other although I, I know that there's rumors so who knows that's all it took and in absence of having a, a a movement that was strong enough to be like no no don't take the bait this is why this is bullshit Th these are the markers on whether or not he's a feminist is he you know, pouring money into services to help uh, to help gender people fleeing gender-based violence. Is he doing this? Is he doing this? Is he doing this? Episode eight will talk about Trudeau's record and why it is ridiculous and laughable to call this guy a feminist. And so I'm not going to go too much further into that. But it's a really good opportunity for us to reflect on the connection between neoliberalism and assuming social movements as a way to destroy them and how when we've transformed social movements from the collective into the individual, then the natural evolution of that is that even the prime minister of Canada can call himself with a straight face a feminist. That in and of itself is confusing, disorienting, sends a very weird message to feminist activists in the country about what it even means to be a feminist, and it sends the very dangerous message that feminism has won because there's a feminist in the highest office in Canada. Not that there's feminist policies, not that the lives of, of women and of non-binary people are better, but that we have won feminism with a feminist prime minister. The Trudeau era also coincides with a new set of regroupment on the ground. Regroupment is a French word for when your movements kind of collapse and then rebuild and then reformulate with other groups. There's, there's new movements of regroupment happening all across Canada that now there's experience with neoliberalism that's 20 years old. There's people that have only grown up in this uh, environment. Um, there's others who, of course, remember a Canada that was different. And groups that don't have formal relationships to the state, uh, in some cases, groups that are actively trying to dismantle the Canadian state, which is critical. The, the foundation of activism in this country needs to always come from that place. And there are groups who are fighting for the rights of the people that they represent or the people that are involved in their movements. And so we have Idle No More which is completely decentralized, creates national networks of other chapters of Idle No More or people that assume the brand Idle No More, but, you know, manage to, to, to take local kinds of action that might look completely different than another part of Canada. 
And Idle No More creates this incredible uh, resurgence of Indigenous activism that then transforms over, you know, the past 15 years into being these amazing actions like Land Back or uh, hereditary chiefs asserting their rights and asserting their authority to protect the land and activists, you know, following their lead and helping to defend them from state security forces. So, so that's one major change that, 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 that grows in the last 15 years, despite the fact that we're living in this era that makes collective organizing very, very difficult. And of course, the other is Black Lives Matter. Uh, and Black Lives Matter, again, it's a similar thing, decentralized with a national organization, but also local chapters. And the local chapters are able to focus on issues that are specific to their local communities without, again, needing that relationship with the Canadian state. And there's, of course, other examples as well. Uh, Activists have found ways to operate within this new world of neoliberal organizing to, 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 to draw on strengths from the past and to try and do things in a, in a bit of a different way. And in the book, I talk about how amazing it is to see this happening specifically in the migrant rights and migrant justice movements. Migrant rights and justice movement organizations, uh, there's, a, there's many of them in Canada. Some of them are service organizations. Some of them help workers to co- uh, confront bosses or, 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 or fight for their rights. And some do advocacy to change the policies from the base. Some are unions, and so they have a formal relationship with workers, and they're trying to improve their working uh, environments. But there's a lot of them all across Canada. And a couple of years ago, they founded the Migrant Rights Alliance for Change. And through that, these groups created an umbrella organization to allow them better coordination and better um, a better strategic access to journalists. And their work is amazing. So you definitely need to check them out if you're not aware of the work that they do. And if you are and you're involved with them, like, thank you very, very much for your work. It's really great. And so I, I mentioned th- this organization as one example of recruitment trying to come up with a national structure that is fluid enough to allow for decentralized organizing, but also that brings coherency to the kind of different work that people are doing all across Canada. Recognizing Canada is really f- actually big. Like, I think a lot of people forget that Canada really is big and that the way that we do things in different parts of this country are actually quite different sometimes. But it wasn't until the pandemic where I saw the role that this organization really played in organizing and advocating for migrant workers in this country. During the pandemic, there were so many different kinds of people who found themselves in very terrible situations, whether it's because of where they worked or where they lived or who they were. And it was very difficult for groups to get through the din of pandemic media coverage. It was very difficult for immigrant service agencies to say this is what our membership is experiencing. It was very difficult for uh, unions to say this is what our workers are experiencing. But the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change was the one exception to this rule. Consistently, migrant worker rights, the conditions that migrant workers were put in, uh, safety, public health measures, were, were constantly placed on the national media radar, and of course, locally. And it was thanks to not just the coordination that comes out of having this national umbrella structure, but also then the member organizations also being able to 
um, kind of complete the narrative that comes out of the national organization. So you'll see often articles that talk about changes at the, uh, you know, visa changes or border changes or uh, changes uh, the government was saying that they were going to bring in uh, to protect migrant workers. And then there would be multiple voices within the story on behalf of migrant workers and sometimes of migrant workers themselves made possible thanks to like a very clear coordination between these activists. There's nothing similar to this today in the feminist movement. It's similar to what NAC used to be, but nothing replaced it to bring feminist organizing together to add coherence and to help create common strategy or consensus on, on, on various issues. You can see that there's just that lack of coherence in, in, in Canada. It's, it's a strategic way that governments help to dis, disorient uh, movements. And because it's a strategic way that governments disorient movements by picking off different voices from here, by, by, by changing or redefining certain terms, we have to be ready for that as activists. And we have to mobilize and organize ourselves in such a way that heads that off at the pass, that we're able to say, no, 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 you're not going to be able to take these words. You're not going to be able to remix them to mean something else. This is what they mean. Here are the people who are most impacted by whatever. And this is what our position is. And if you think about the wage subsidy or the uh, CERB and how that had a clear disproportionate impact on women, uh, a clear disproportionate impact on racialized women, especially Indigenous and Black women. They announced these two programs. One is segmented based on wage. And so if you make more money, you would get more money from the wage subsidy, which simply reinforces wage inequities, right? No feminist movements were saying that when, the, when that money was announced. And actually, to this day, no, very few people are actually making that, that, that point. On the CERB, by, by refusing to give money to people who made less than $5,000 in 2019, the, the liberals were actively targeting women who were poor who were disabled, who were racialized. And again, where were, where were prominent feminist voices talking about the CERB in those terms? We need to think very, very hard. We need to think very, very hard about what we've lost by not having some sort of national location, network, roundtable, regroupment, thing, conference, I don't know, that brings together disparate voices and that forces our conversations off of social media where we're often pushed to ridiculous disagreements just to make Twitter money and have people in a room together and figure out how do we address the gaps within our organizing and how do we move forward to push feminist issues ahead. That's the thought that I'm going to leave you with for this episode. But the rest of the podcast actually explores what do we get and what do we lose when we're no longer organizing in these ways. This podcast was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Nora Loretto. Music is also by me, except this, which is General Khan's Garam Chai. If you like what you hear, make sure you share it with all of your feminist friends. This podcast was produced by Fernwood, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out all of Harbinger's left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. So my justice is with the highest above. I've had about enough. There's too much to discuss. Lost trust, but I'm not giving up. Hear this beat, put you in the hot seat and make you nervous. Me, I'm earnest. I bring the heat to a tea, guaranteed. Girl,